Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, and your source for all the latest mental health-related news. And on tonight's podcast, we'll be talking about things related to the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into potential new treatments and uh, the causes of mental illness along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment as well as trying to better educate the public about mental health issues. All that brought to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. And welcome back this is pre-recorded for airing first on November 4th, 2015. Uh, the first podcast after we turned the clocks back for fall. Hope those of you who suffer from seasonal affective disorder, otherwise known as winter depression, have prepared for that by starting to go to bed a little bit earlier last week or so. And uh, also, if you have a light box, time to start using it. First thing in the morning, about half an hour. Again, you don't have to sit and stare at the thing. Just have it on while you're near it, and that's just fine. You can have it on you while you're eating your breakfast or reading your paper or whatever you do in the morning. Uh, but that will go a long way to helping stave off the winter depression. Uh, also, <clears throat> It's a good idea on those days that it happens to be sunny first thing in the morning to take advantage of that. And I realize that's not going to be all the time, especially not with the weather we've been having here in metro Atlanta of late. But regardless, wherever you are, and uh, whenever it happens to be sunny first thing in the morning, take advantage of that and get outside if it's not too cold or you don't mind bundling up. Um, and if not, then... Throw open the blinds, the drapes, the curtains, and let as much of that morning sunlight into your house or apartment as possible. All right, well, to get started with tonight's podcast, this is a subject that is uh, difficult to deal with, admittedly. The concept of self-injury. Uh, this is a symptom that people don't often discuss with their doctors, and uh, this is something that people do to themselves um, and uh, often feel a sense of shame of it. Uh, this is <clears throat> something that young people especially do, but not exclusively. So therefore, some of you listening to this may have um, children, uh, including adolescent children, who self-injure, uh, or nieces or nephews or grandchildren of that age who do this type of thing. And some of you listening to this may have done this in the past when you were younger, and quite possibly some of you listening may still be engaging in this behavior. Uh, so <clears throat> hopefully this will be informative and perhaps helpful. We'll see. Now, self-injury so often occurs in private, and it's an important reason why solid statistics are hard to come by. 
But researchers estimate between 10 and 40 percent of adolescents, and up to 10 percent of adults, harm themselves physically, usually by cutting or even burning their skin. Yet the condition known as non-suicidal self-injury is not officially recognized by the American Psychiatric Association as a mental disorder. Which means insurance may not cover treatment, and therefore the lead author of the study claimed that the mental health system is failing patients who have a clear problem for which they need help. Now, I want to just explain a little bit about this term non-suicidal self-injury. It's called that because the person engaging in this behavior does not want to die. And that is not the intention of their behavior; hence, it's non-suicidal. Yet, it is self-injury.、Uh, but it's known by that admittedly awkward term to distinguish this from people who、uh, do self-injure as a way of trying to end their life.、Uh, <clears throat> this is often a confusing and disturbing part of dealing with those who self-injure. Too often, helping professionals、uh, assume that they are suicidal and they're just about to eventually take their life, but、uh, this is most often not the case. That that is not why people who do this engage in this behavior. Now, this paper was published recently in Clinical Psychological Review. A growing number of psychologists believe that. Non-suicidal self-injury should be included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, otherwise known as the DSM, which is the standard compilation of psychiatric disorders used by mental health practitioners and insurers. Since self-injury is not on that list of disorders to qualify for medical coverage. For treatment for those who cut, burn, or otherwise injure themselves, they must fit in other existing diagnoses, such as borderline personality disorder, depression, or an anxiety disorder, which occurs barely half the time. <clears throat> Meaning that it's not often that someone with these other diagnoses. Engages in non-suicidal self-injury. It certainly may be more common in those with borderline personality disorder, but、uh, not exclusively. Now, currently, the fifth edition of the DSM, issued in the spring of、uh, 2013, calls this type of self-injury a condition that needs further study. Which is well short of the recognition needed to make it an official diagnosis, in order that there would be insurance coverage for it,、uh, that would better define the affected population, and hopefully permit the development of more effective treatment methods.、Uh, the paper <clears throat> that we're talking about is titled "Non-Suicidal Self-Injury Disorder." The path to diagnostic validity and final obstacles. 
Uh, it's aimed at filling in any blanks that are holding the American Psychiatric Association back, leading to the full recognition uh, that this is a disorder and uh, deserves its own separate diagnosis in the DSM. The urge to self-injure can baffle people who do not engage in it. Most obvious is the severe pain it can cause. But in cases where psychological pain becomes overwhelming, negative thoughts that cascade and won't stop, a person may feel that a diversion, even if it hurts, is the only solution available by Applying one type of pain, the physical pain, they feel they get rid of the different type of pain, that of the emotional pain. Again, this is not expected to make sense to those of us who don't engage in this type of behavior. But nonetheless, this is the explanation that most people who do this will give you. And as I said before, most people who self-injure are not trying to kill themselves but they do become somewhat more likely to consider or attempt suicide later, uh, which is another argument, another reason to raise self-injury's profile to that of a full-fledged recognized disorder uh, with a diagnosis in the DSM and therefore insurance coverage. Other research recently published in the journal Pediatrics based on visits by teens to hospital emergency rooms, suggests that non-suicidal self-injury appears to be on the rise. If that finding is accurate, there is reason to suspect that use of social media is among the causes. Before there were smartphones and chat forums, young people who cut and burn themselves most likely kept their behavior a secret. But now there are online communities where adolescents actually promote self-injury among themselves. In fact, there are schools where self-injury has become contagious, such as a high school in Middletown, Connecticut, where the school district reported last year that 31 students had recently been hospitalized for mental health behaviors that included cutting. <clears throat> the authors are exploring practical solutions for research participants who self-injure. Some of these methods involve the same smartphones that those at risk have used to go online. One still experimental app invites patients to track their thoughts and feelings at multiple times during the day, data that may be especially enlightening on days they self-injure. At least half of young people who cut and burn want to stop hurting themselves and would welcome effective help. Some advice is that they seek out a trusted and sympathetic adult potentially a teacher or school nurse who can steer them toward the care they need. Uh, but I would add that it's tricky for someone with this problem, especially a young person, to follow that advice because in order to get the help that they need, they're going to have to find someone 
who's very understanding and non-judgmental and maybe already knows something about this subject or this behavior. Uh, and that's no small order. Now, another piece of advice is to find more constructive ways to divert their attention from their emotional pain other than trying to distract themselves from it with physical pain. Certain smartphone games or other types of games or puzzles could take someone's mind away from self-injuring by having them focus away from the problem they're experiencing and give them a natural chance to calm down. Well, perhaps uh, a smartphone app can be developed that would help people focus away from their urges to do this and find other ways of dealing with emotional pain. We're going to stop here for our commercial break, and we'll be right back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Complete symptom resolution reduces risk of depression recurrence, according to a new study. Now, this is important because for those who suffer from depression, uh, too few people realize that it isn't something you should think of as just, well, uh, I had some life circumstances that led to me getting depressed, and yes, I had to take some medicine and do some therapy and counseling, but I'm better now, so maybe I should just discontinue treatment. Uh, First of all, depression is an illness that has a very, very high recurrence rate. 
if you have only one lifetime episode of depression, you have a 50% chance of having a second. If you've had two, you have about a 75% chance of having a third. And if you've had three and made a bad decision to discontinue your treatment again, you have a 90% chance of having a fourth. Uh, it's like each episode that one has makes it more likely that you're going to have another one. Really, like most other illnesses, when you get right down to it. But what this article is talking about <clears throat> is that if you don't adequately treat the episode that you're going through, whether it's the first one or a subsequent one, that also will increase your risk of having a recurrence. And uh, what the article will tell us is that when treating depression, it's not good enough to just say, well, the person is feeling better, they're no longer in the deep depths of depression, and that's great, that it's wrong to settle for that. It's important to aggressively treat the depression and restore the person to normal functioning as much as is possible uh, <clears throat> to prevent them from suffering a recurrence. Now, uh, as I said, the people who have had an episode of major depression are at high risk for having another episode, and researchers at uh, UCSD, uh, University of California, San Diego School of Medicine, found that the risk of recurrence is significantly lower for people with complete rather than partial depressive symptom resolution. Let me define for you what a major depression episode is. That would be extremely sad or depressed mood all day or just about the entire day, every day for at least 14 days in a row or longer, uh, with not only the mood being extremely sad and depressed, as I just described, but uh, decided significant loss of interest in usual pleasurable activities. Uh, if it meets those thresholds, including the 14-day time frame, then that is an episode of major depression. Now, this latest findings, the uh, UCSD study, was published online on October the 27th in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, and it points to the need to redefine clinically what constitutes the end of a major depressive episode. It also suggests changes in the management of depression treatment that may be needed. Current clinical consensus defines the end of a major depressive episode as eight consecutive weeks with no more than minimal residual symptoms. So, in other words, two months uh, in a row with no more than minimal symptoms and that's the end of the episode. Now, that definition includes two distinct levels of depressive symptom resolution. There's asymptomatic recovery, which means no symptoms. In other words, no depressive symptoms at all. And there's residual symptom resolution. That means there is some continuing mild or milder symptoms. Now, in the study, researchers compared the two levels in terms of 
a time to a future depressive episode and other key clinical outcomes. In other words, looking at a group whose episode ended as asymptomatic, that is no symptoms, versus a group whose major depressive episode ended with some residual symptoms. And uh, they analyzed data from 322 patients diagnosed with major depression who entered the National Institute of Mental Health Collaborative Depression Study from 1978 to 1981, and they followed these people for up to 31 years. That's an extraordinarily long period of time in any kind of medical research, and you're going to get great data with with that long a period of follow-up. Now, of those patients, 61.2% recovered asymptomatically from their diagnosed major depressive episode. In other words, 61.2% had full recovery, no depressive symptoms, uh, which is actually quite good. Now, the research team found that this group remained free of having another subsequent depressive episode relapse or recurrence 4.2 times longer than those who still had residual symptoms from their initial episode. The median time was 135 weeks till a subsequent relapse or recurrence if they achieved an asymptomatic or symptom-free state versus much, much less, only 32 weeks to the next recurrence or relapse if someone had residual symptoms at the point where their initial major depressive episode resolved. So you're talking about the better part uh, of more than two years versus eight months. I mean, that's a big difference. Now, retaining residual symptoms was associated with a nearly three times higher risk of returning to a full-blown depressive episode within a year, 74% versus 26%. The residual symptom group also had a greater depressive illness burden during the next 10 or 20 years and more long-term difficulty with work and household functioning and with personal relationships. Uh, Depressive illness burden, not a specifically measurable or designed thing, but it's more of a descriptive term meant to refer to the negative impact of the depression on someone's life in those domains that we just mentioned, work, household functioning, and functioning in personal relationships. Uh, Depressive illness has a negative impact on all three of those domains. For physicians, the findings indicate that patient treatment should continue until depressive symptoms are completely resolved. If you treat a major depressive episode until there are no remaining symptoms, the individual is likely to enter a stable state of wellness and be free of depression for months or even years. Conversely, treatment should not be ended just because the patient has improved. 
and this is the point I was making before, as long as there are any residual symptoms, they are still ill to some degree and therefore at high risk of relapse. Now, unfortunately, it's quite common in treating major depression and especially if people are being treated by their primary care physician who uh, doesn't have the time to spend with them and doesn't have the capability of seeing someone very often uh, and just gives them the basic starting dose of an antidepressant. And uh, if they're feeling better, then great, they think they're done. And the patient may be very grateful to have some relief and say, you know, I feel better and I'm just so happy I'm not severely down in the dumps like I was before I took this medicine. But on the other hand, have they achieved full syndromal recovery or are they still having symptoms? And now we see this is not just a, a trivial or academic distinction. If their episode is treated aggressively enough to where they're no longer having symptoms, their long-term outcome is much better uh, in terms of avoiding a relapse. Now, the authors of this study also found that the very large difference in the length of time that the groups stayed well was not due to differences in the level of antidepressant treatment received. In addition, the level of symptom resolution was more important than any of 18 other predictors regarding the length of time that subjects stay free of a depressive episode. The findings provide the first research-based assessment of how to define the end of a major depressive episode in terms of both symptom state and necessary duration of treatment as to the length of the period without symptoms needed to define major depression recovery, the researchers found that four consecutive weeks at the asymptomatic or symptom-free status was virtually as strong an indicator of stable recovery as eight weeks. So if you make it to four weeks without symptoms at all, chances are you're going to go on to aid and, and you can consider yourself completely recovered from that major depressive episode. Based on the study findings, the authors conclude that four weeks completely free of depressive symptoms should be the new definition of recovery from a major depressive episode and the goal of treatment. And that's really the main takeaway from this study. So for those of you who yourselves suffer from depression, uh, and also those of you who know others that you're close to who do suffer from it or have suffered from it, the important take-home message is that it's not good enough to help someone feel better to get them out of the deep, deep hole. Uh, it's important to get someone completely recovered without symptoms, get them to that four and preferably eight-week threshold without symptoms and that will go a long way to preventing their having to suffer another subsequent episode. We're going to take another commercial break right here. We'll be back with more mental health-related news. 
You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, Visit LibertyOnCall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, this is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, and your source for all mental health-related news. This next item is of extreme importance to any of you who may have parents or a spouse or other family member who suffers from dementia or who may live in at least uh, independent, if not assisted living or memory care or certainly skilled nursing facility, a study finds that the use of prescription antipsychotics among older adults is increasing and increases with increasing age, despite the known risks of serious side effects, especially in older adults, the fraction of seniors treated with antipsychotic medications increases with age. Such medications may be appropriate for treating certain mental disorders, yet more than three-quarters of seniors receiving an antipsychotic prescription in 2010 had no documented clinical psychiatric diagnosis during the year. Further, among those who did have a diagnosed mental disorder and or dementia, Nearly half of the oldest patients had dementia, regardless of Food and Drug Administration warnings that antipsychotics increase mortality in people with dementia. So these drugs are being commonly and frequently prescribed to elderly patients with dementia, despite a very clear and ominous warning about increased risk of mortality. Known side effects of these antipsychotic medications include metabolic problems such as increased blood sugar, increased triglycerides and cholesterol, and also weight gain. For older adults receiving antipsychotics, the risks of dangerous side effects such as strokes, fractures, kidney injury, and mortality are increased. Despite concerns 
Researchers found that the percentage of people receiving an antipsychotic prescription in 2010 increased with age after age 65. The percentage with an antipsychotic prescription was approximately twice as high among people 80 to 84 years old as among those age 65 to 69. This research was funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, or the NIMH, which is the Mental Health Division of the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, and the findings were published in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. The research team looked at antipsychotic prescriptions filled between 2006 in 2010, and found that among older adults who had used the antipsychotics, around half had used the drugs in excess of 120 days in the year. In light of these risks, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, has issued warnings of increased mortality regarding antipsychotics in elderly patients with dementia, particularly for the atypical or second-generation antipsychotics. Nevertheless, around 80% of antipsychotic prescriptions among adults 65 and older were for these exact group of medications. Typically, psychiatrists are more familiar with the properties of antipsychotic medications. However, about half of the people age 65 to 69 and only one-fifth of those age 80 to 84 who were treated with antipsychotics received any of these prescriptions from psychiatrists. The FDA has approved antipsychotics for treatment of certain mental disorders particularly schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Yet the majority of the people in this study had no such diagnosis. Among people aged 70 and older who received an antipsychotic in 2009, only around 20% had a recorded mental disorder or dementia diagnosis during the year. Among that 20%, many had a dementia diagnosis. 25% of ages 70 to 74, 37% of ages 75 to 79, and 48% of ages 80 to 84. The results of the study suggest a need to focus on new ways to treat the underlying causes of agitation and confusion in the elderly. And I could not agree with that conclusion more. The public health community needs to give greater attention to targeted environmental and behavioral treatments rather than medications. And I would say to that assertion that if such effective interventions could be found and applied consistently, I'd be all for that. But the problem is that when these patients have extreme bouts of confusion, agitation, 
wandering and other dangerous behavior that threatens their safety, they will often get prescriptions for these powerful and dangerous antipsychotic drugs because they work. Uh, they will often be effective in reducing uh, the agitated and or aggressive or otherwise uh, dangerous behavior because it's so uh, disorganized and uh, uh, their forgetfulness uh, prevents them from being able to take care of themselves safely. So yes, we absolutely need safer alternatives, uh, but so far there's nothing else that's been considered a substitute. So uh, we psychiatrists and other physicians who are called upon to treat these folks are certainly left with a tough decision. Uh, do you prescribe medications that have a strong likelihood of being effective in uh, giving patients and their caregivers relief from these difficult symptoms, uh, but that carry very serious risks to their health, uh, not to mention a very serious warning from the FDA about prescribing them? Um, or do you simply let the patient and caregivers uh, suffer the consequences of these symptoms? Or do you try haphazardly uh, for substitute safer treatments because as of yet uh, there's nothing that's been documented to be helpful? Uh, there was one small study that found that an antidepressant called Celexa uh, was effective at reducing uh, agitation in the elderly. Uh, but more than just that one study needs to be done to change uh, the mindset of doctors into thinking that would be a, a safe, reliable, and effective treatment. I think the answer is if these medications are going to be used at all, in other words, if uh, the physician or psychiatrist uh, determines that it would be necessary to treat the elderly demented patient's symptoms with an antipsychotic, then the key to mitigating and minimizing the risks would be to use the lowest possible effective dose for the least amount of time. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, the lowest possible dose to get the symptoms under control that's fairly obvious. It speaks for itself. But as far as the, the shortest period of time, um, every, say, couple or few months, a patient's symptoms and situation should be reassessed. Uh, unfortunately, as a patient with dementia's illness progresses, their, their symptoms change, and they may decrease or increase at different times. And this is why often uh, reviewers of medications that people in uh, elder care facilities uh, will often call for what's called periodic reassessment of uh, a patient's medication regimen. In other words, well, this person has been on this medication X amount of time. Does it really need to be continued? And uh, shouldn't there be an attempt made to taper it off and discontinue it? Uh, observe what will happen to the patient if the behavior of the medication was designed to treat does not come back fine. 
then you take the patient off of it and you've now decreased their exposure to the risks of serious side effects. If during the course of trying to taper off and stop the medication, the symptoms recur, uh, then that means you continue it for another several months or so and uh, reassess at another time. Again, um, an important consideration for those of you with elder loved ones who are getting such care, uh, <clears throat> be on top of what medications they're taking. Uh, be aware of the purpose they're taking the medication uh, for, uh, how long they've been on it. Um, <clears throat> do some research into what dose they're taking. Uh, is it a high, medium, uh, or low dose? What are the most common side effects? And uh, I would also say that uh, depending on the medication, especially the atypical antipsychotics, it would be a good idea for there to be medical monitoring to guard against the common side effects. Um, <clears throat> weight gain being one, um, increased blood sugar, cholesterol, triglycerides being another. And <clears throat> uh, sometimes even, or much more rarely, but sometimes even cardiac arrhythmias or cardiac conduction defects. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, again, so these are, these are not benign medications, even if they do keep uh, very serious and difficult symptoms under control, such as agitation, uh, delusions, uh, anger, aggression, wandering, uh, so on and so forth. And I certainly look forward to uh, effective but safer treatments for the elderly uh, to, to deal with these symptoms uh, relieve their suffering as well as relieve significant caregiver burden that these symptoms have. All right, we're going to take another commercial break here. We'll be back with more mental health related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. 
So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health news. What do you think when you see a public service announcement regarding a health-related message? Do you just tune it out? Does it cause you to think or react, maybe consider changing your behavior? What if it were the case that producers of these ads knew exactly how to target their message to affect your brain? Sound a little bit scary? I agree. Well, this latest study looked at how brain imaging can predict the success of large public health campaigns. It's a frustrating fact that most people would live longer if only they could make small changes. Stop smoking, not such a small change. Eat better, again, a very big change. Exercise more a big change, and practice safe sex. Hmm. Yeah, they're all big changes for people who don't engage in those behaviors. Health messaging of these public health campaigns is one important way to change, or try anyway, to change behavior on a large scale. But while a successful campaign can improve millions of lives, a failed one can be an enormous waste of resources. The problem is that people are notoriously bad at guessing which ads will be effective and ineffective at changing behavior. So uh, researchers said, what about a different approach? They look inside people's brains. In a study soon to be published in the journal Social Cognitive and Affective Neuroscience, the researchers found that brain activity in just 50 smokers in Michigan was able to predict the outcome of an anti-smoking email campaign sent to 800,000 smokers in New York State. So this wasn't even a public service announcement uh, in the sense that I had in mind either a radio ad or a TV ad. This was an email although it was sent to 800,000 smokers in New York State. And keep in mind, the researchers looked at and recorded the activity in the brain of only 50 people, 50 smokers. They used functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, as each smoker viewed 40 anti-smoking images, one by one. Now, again, functional MRI differs from the type of MRI that you might go to your local hospital or imaging center to get if you hurt yourself, for example. A functional MRI of the brain enables scientists to see in real time what areas of the brain react when someone is thinking something or doing something 
or reading or watching something or listening to something. So again, they took these 50 smokers, put them in the fMRI scanner, and gave them 40 different anti-smoking images to look at one at a time. In particular, researchers focused on an area of the brain called the medial medial prefrontal cortex. This is an area of the brain that helps us decide what information is relevant and valuable to us. So, of course, that's the area that these researchers would focus on. That's the way they figured they could tell which of these anti-smoking images resonated most with the smokers who were looking at them, and uh, therefore those were the images that would be most effective in the anti-smoking public health campaign. Researchers predicted that the more activity an image stimulated in the brain's medial prefrontal cortex, the more motivating and self-relevant that image would be to make that person stop smoking. These same 40 images were then used in an email campaign sent to 800,000 smokers by the New York State Smokers Quit Line. That explains where they got 800,000 smokers' email addresses. The email to each smoker contained one of the images randomly assigned, along with the identical message, Quit Smoking, Start Living. It also provided a link where smokers could get free help to quit. By the way, I just want to mention most states uh, have a quit line and some local municipalities do as well. Uh, Georgia has a quit smoking hotline. Uh, you know, it's actually, uh, there's, there's help available if people want it. They just have to have the motivation to quit. All right, so back to the study. Not all images were created equal. Among those who opened the email at all, click-through rates vary from 10% for the least successful images to 26% for the most successful. But interestingly, the negative anti-smoking images which elicited the most powerful brain response in the medial prefrontal cortex of the 50 smokers in Michigan were also the most successful at getting the hundreds of thousands of New York smokers to click for help in quitting. And research has shown that visits to a quit smoking site correlate with the likelihood that someone actually will quit. So there you have it, a direct connection between some brain imaging showing certain images light up this area of the brain in smokers, the medial prefrontal cortex, more so than others. And those are the same images that will get smokers who are looking at these images in an email to be more likely to click through and say, okay, I'm going to get on this website and get help to quit. So this is how they're picking the most successful images to get people to quit smoking. Now, by their nature, messages about the risks we take with our health, whether it be by smoking or eating poorly 
we're not exercising, we're not practicing safe sex, cause people to become defensive. If you can get around that defensiveness by helping people see why advice might be relevant or valuable to them, your messaging will have a more powerful effect. By combining the self-reported survey data, that is what smokers said they found effective, with the brain responses from the functional MRI study, the researchers found that they could more accurately predict which messages would be effective than by knowing either on its own. Using this brain data to predict the success or failure of advertising campaigns has long been a holy grail for marketers, of course. Although some have made claims to proprietary methods for doing so, the science behind it has been opaque. This study is among the first to demonstrate specific brain patterns to predict the success of public health campaigns. If you ask people what they plan to do or how they feel about a message, you get one set of answers. Often the brain gives a different set of answers, which may help make public health campaigns more successful. And <clears throat> they might be able to use what was learned from this study and other studies to design messages that are going to help people quit smoking and make them healthier and happier in the long run. Well, does, do any of you listening to this find this uh, at least a little bit possibly scary? Uh, what I mean is, all right, it's all well and good to want to promote and make a public health campaign successful. If you're trying to change unhealthy behavior, even if you're using a backdoor through brain imaging that you know will light up uh, the part of the brain that is involved <clears throat> in deciding what information is valuable and relevant or not, um, when it comes to what was done in this study, one can't argue with trying to uh, change uh, people to go to healthier behaviors. But certainly, uh, you can see the possibility of a slippery slope to where marketers whose message isn't to promote health but to increase profits could potentially use and manipulate this kind of thing. Um, you know, is it too difficult to imagine, for example, that a company trying to sell their product via email or any other media would ask for a bunch of volunteers to lie in an FM, fMRI machine, a very benign procedure, um, and uh, show them several images and see whether their medial prefrontal cortex lights up or not, um, and then use these images in a targeted marketing campaign. Uh, I'm sorry, but I don't think it's too difficult to imagine that that could happen. So, you know, while it's great that in this case uh, the information was used to promote helping people quit smoking, and I'm all for that, uh, I just hope that this method isn't somehow 
at some point down the line used for uh, more nefarious or, or profit-driven uh, versions. Um, none of us would enjoy being manipulated in such a way to purchase things. Do you remember back in the late mid to late 70s, the whole scandal about subliminal messages in advertising. Uh, for those of you who are too young to remember that or just don't recall what happened, uh, advertisers were discovered to put very subtle images that uh, were perceived by the brain but not in conscious awareness in pictures, in advertisements, in magazines, or sometimes a few frames of popcorn or soda uh, during a movie to get people to buy things. And, of course, uh, once this was discovered, um, it was outlawed. Um, this would take us to another level if you know what images uh, stimulate the brain to uh, accept certain messages or not. Well, with that, we're going to have to wrap up tonight's show. I hope that you found the information that I enjoyed bringing to you interesting and informative, and I hope you have a wonderful stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.